Welcome back to SwitchCast. Thank you for joining us. It is Wednesday at 8 p.m. That means we are here live with a new guest. I am your host, Doug Tabbitt, founder of Switch Cars, Cannonball record holder. And every week on SwitchCast, we'll have a new guest. Some of them are well-known, some of them are unknown, but all of them have a wealth of knowledge to share with me and you, the viewers. So uh, tonight, we're going to be talking with Brooke Bright, a friend of mine that goes way back. He is a financial advisor, wealth manager, and has a lot of letters, <laughs> certifications that I don't know about, but uh, you know, the, the car market relies heavily on the overall market and interpreting the car market uh, it helps to be able to interpret economics. And since I'm just a used car salesman, I invited Brooke on to, uh, to help me navigate, to help all of us navigate this, this crazy market. And, you know, we talked about doing this a, a while ago, and it is probably the perfect timing because, you know, in the last couple weeks, the stock market has gone down a hefty amount. Just today, the Fed's increased uh, the... Interest rates. Interest rates by yep. three quarters of a point, which they swore they weren't going to do a month ago. Uh, so we're right in the thick of in the thick of a crazy market, and uh, it, yeah, it's it's definitely going to affect the car market, but uh, we don't always know how. If we had a crystal ball, of course, all of us would have bought cars in 2019 and held on to them, but we don't. Um, and, and we don't know what's going to happen now, but the best we can do is use our resources and our collective experience and history to kind of learn from the past and, and understand what, uh, what the cause and effect is to, to help us understand and make good decisions. Um, those of you watching on, or sorry, those of you listening, uh, on the audio podcast later, you won't know that it's later because it'll be now for you. But anyway, you don't get to appreciate the uh, difference in elevation. <laughs> between, I've not heard that one. <laughs> between me and Brooke. Now, there's there's a lot of difference in elevation between me and a lot of people. Rob Pitts calls me the tiny dancer, but that's usually just because, you know, I'm hanging around people like Ed and Arnie that are a lot taller. I'm really not short. I'm 5'9", <laughs> but I have a, I'm all my height is in the legs so when i sit down i'm really short i'm like a head shorter than my wife and we're the same height when we sit i'm a head shorter but brooke how how tall are you i come in at a at a cool six nine six nine brooke is a whole foot taller than i am so uh yeah it's really stunted my racing career to be honest <laughs> i had big plans well, being 5'9 stunted my basketball career. Yeah, fair enough. Although I could dunk. Really? Do you believe that? Yeah. That's pretty good work. 5'9 five, five, white kid could dunk. I like I mean, that's that's aggressive. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Do you have? Can you dunk just like standing on your tiptoes? I cannot. To, I have to jump a little. But you can still dunk. Maybe. Just had knee surgery two weeks ago, so we'll see. But <laughs> I do have a goal, and it involves, you know, putting one down. We'll see. All right, so what what cars do you actually fit in? Well, that's the that's the amusing part, right? So I like to go fast, and I love cars, but I'm 6'9". I don't fit in any of them, right? 
So <laughs> I drive a truck. I go fast as I can in a truck. See, I don't believe that you don't fit in any. So Ed Bullion is six, four, five, six, something like that, and he squeezes himself into a Lamborghini Murcielago and other stuff that he shouldn't. Um, uh, Anderson Verajao, you know the the he's my, Cavs he's, he's a little taller than I am. He get what's he get in? So I saw him once. Um, we were downtown, and he was pulling into his apartment, and me and a buddy were chatting with him, and he was in a Mazda six. And his knees were, I mean, he had his window down. You could see his knees like equal <laughs> with the door sill. <laughs> so it might be, he might be in there, but it's not a comfortable rod. No, but it's, I think it's mind over matter. People tell me that I can get in a pre-2005 Porsche and have enough room. Yeah, I, Porsches are, are fairly roomy, not the mid-engine ones. Uh, because mid-engine cars move the cab forward and then you run into the wheel wells yeah, in front. Yeah, not so that one. Even like boxers, I can't put my legs out straight. Uh, but I think a 911 you'd fit. Okay. That's what I'm told. That's what I'm told. So maybe after the show, we'll go, you know, try a couple out. Yeah. Yeah. If if you guys have any suggestions, if you're Please nearly help. as tall as Brooke, I really want to sell this guy a car. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let us know what what cars are good for tall people because I don't know. I am the tiny dancer. Um <laughs> If you would like to join us on the show, you are welcome to post your questions in the comment flow of wherever you're watching live. They will be relayed to wonderful, smooth Mark, and he will be uh, relaying the questions to us. Uh, you can also call in and ask us your questions live. Uh, callers always get first preference over the virtual questions. The number to call is 216-294-4124. Again, it's 216 294 Four one two four. Again, I'm joined by Brooke Bright. He is a wealth manager and financial advisor. And uh, Brooke, give us a little more background on your qualifications and experience because I kind of butchered it. Ah, you got it pretty much right. So I'm a yeah, I'm a wealth advisor. Uh, I work for a company called Landing Point Financial Group. We're based in Avon, but um, you know we service Northeast Ohio and and uh, and really east of the Mississippi. So we have a pretty far reach. And, um, yeah, those are the basics. Gotcha. How long have you been doing that? So I've, I have a 24, I think, this 24-year career, uh, but the first 20 years were institutional money management. So I had different types of clients, sort of hedge fund, mutual fund, that kind of client. And then the last several years, uh, you know, retail, small business, uh, business owners in general, uh, those kind of clients. Gotcha. And are you primarily doing... Uh, traditional investments, managing stocks and those types of investments or, or the whole picture? Yeah, so we work, uh, we're an independent uh, RIA, Registered Investment Advisor. Okay. So we do not have any, we're not, we, we the whole world is open to us, right? So uh, what we invest on really, or invest in really depends on the person's situation. And we'll find the tools. We have all the tools available. And we'll pick the tools that are right for, you know, your particular situation, the next person, et cetera. So if somebody came to you and said, I got two million bucks and I want to invest half of it into cars, is that something you would do or is that way too out of the ballpark, risky, weird? Well, so the way we work uh, in general is, um, you know, we have partners, right? We kind of think about a virtual family office with people. So, you know, the... Um, 
the normal people that you would be would have involved there would be an estate attorney or a CPA or things of that nature, right? So we have experts that we bring to the table there, right? But if we had someone that wanted to invest in cars, frankly, I would call you and connect the two of you, right? Because that's not my expertise, that's your expertise. So there's a lot of connecting, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. not the answer for everything. And so that's when we go into the network and see who should this person be talking to. Interesting. Okay. So I, I, you actually gave the wrong answer. You're supposed to say if somebody comes to you and wants to invest in cars, you tell them no, because cars aren't investments. Ah. <laughs> Not good investments anyway. That's what That's I keep true. preaching. They aren't but, good investments. They're better than yeah. boats. But you, you said one of your clients recently sunk a million or so into cars, right? Yep. He's a car guy. Um, and uh, yeah, over the last year, he's picked up, you know, three or four cars and um did he do it with the purpose of gaining a return on them or just because he liked cars and wanted to park his money somewhere it's probably more along the lines of a store of value right like he feels he isn't going to lose money there Mm -hmm. right and again he's a car guy right so he grew up in the car business family-owned dealerships and stuff so uh he knows all about him he's trafficked through different cars over the last 25 years um but, you know, it's just a, an alternative asset class, right? In the last 15 years, you've seen alternative asset classes pop up all over the place. Well, cars is one of them, rightly or wrongly. Sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah, right. But, you know. Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies. Uh, you know, I saved. NFTs. I, <laughs> NFTs. Like, there's some weird ones, right? Tulips. Yeah. No, tulips. sorry. That was 1,500 years ago. Um, it happened, though. <laughs> it did. Now it's monkeys. Yeah, people were pedal to the metal with those investments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they might have been blooming idiots, but <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. They I think they experienced some rapid growth. There was rapid growth yeah. at that time, yeah. yeah. What was the, the first root? great mania? What was the root of that issue? Just a run on tulips. <laughs> Dang it, good. I didn't need my drum. <laughs> I can go all night. <laughs> That's a good one. Should we branch off into a different topic? <laughs> All right. So you and I had a really good conversation at Starbucks the other day, um, which kind of fueled the, uh, you know, the, uh, the desire to have you on the podcast because it was just a lot of my questions and my frustration with, you know, seeking to understand why uh, things are going up in value when people don't have money or highly leveraged and indebted um how i mean obviously we can connect the dots between the government printing money and inflation and that driving you know assets up in value because there's just you know there's more money and less things to spend money on so that's an easy one but a lot of the other metrics to me don't make sense especially right now when we're seeing higher interest rates somewhat of an easing in the supply chain not totally but somewhat um and you know kind of a squeeze in people's personal budgets from gas prices food prices energy prices now people's investments are going down in value and people have cashed out their retirement or taken out um you know, 401k loans in the last couple of years because they lifted those penalties, all sorts of fiscal policies that allowed people to leverage themselves more and make kind of dumb decisions over the past couple of years. And 
yet we don't seem to be seeing the fruit of that yet. Cars, houses, all those types of things are still going up in value. People are still spending money like it's going out of style. And even today, I'm looking at you know the Fed uh, predictably hiked the interest rate three quarters of a point, and you know we knew that was coming in the last couple of days anyway. Um, the stock market's off 16, 17, whatever percent for the year. Bitcoin and and other crypto is down. You know. 40% from its high, 50%. And yet, you know, we're shopping for a house and just going, I don't get it. People are still just coming out of the woodwork, cash, no contingency offers, and outbidding each other like crazy. And even in the last two days, the sales I'm watching on Porsches are record, if not record highs, they're high value. And, and there seems to me to be this disparity between what should be and what is. And you were helpful in kind of walking me through that and navigating that. So give me your perspective just on that disparity and what's going on, why that's happening, and maybe what we can expect. Yeah, so a lot to unpack there. So we'll just talk about cars first, right? Because different asset class have different drivers right now. But with cars, you have two main things. First of all, um, baby boomers have an awful lot of money. Yeah, market up, market down, that's fine. But there's an awful lot of money in the baby boomer generation, right? And so very nostalgic. That's a characteristic of baby boomers. So maybe they always wanted a car. And so that prompts them to go out and just get one. Maybe they are kind of into cars, have three or four, and they're happy to add to the collection, right? That's fine, no problem. Um, and then the other thing that is a driver there is COVID came around and changed the way people think about their kind of rest of their life. So the whole YOLO idea comes into play, right? <laughs> and the, the millennial term that... Yeah. Cause boomers to spend all their money. 100%, right? And so that gets these guys and gals saying, you know what? I've got plenty of money, and um, I want I want a Porsche. I'm going to go get one right now. And that was awesome. I might get a second one, right? And so there's just more buyers. There's more bidders than there ever has been. And um, then on top of all that, you think about how – um, a lot of people that were 45, 55 back in 08, 09, stock market crashed, and they watched what that did to the people that were retiring. And so I know that you don't like to think of cars as an investment. They're probably not an investment, but they do hold their value decently, right? If Depends on the car. Well, it depends yeah, on the yeah, car yeah. for sure. And we're, I'm just kind of thinking about that higher-end car, right? So you add all those things together and you have a real nice strong bid for cars interesting expensive cars okay now what about so i i I follow that 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 tracks but what about now when it seems like you know the last couple years money has been disposable yeah both on the government side and on the personal side for a number of reasons but now it seems like that is coming to a screeching halt yep yet it's still being spent like it's disposable people have a squeeze in their personal budgets people are you know i I read a stat the other day that said um 
over 30%, I think it was 32% of small businesses nationwide could not make their rent on time last month. One in three. That is a huge stat. People, businesses can't friggin' make their rent, yet Porsches, Ferraris, houses, all these, it's like there's unlimited money coming from somewhere. I, I, I can't reconcile that in my head. Well, so spending is going to lag. Okay. So I wouldn't, so we'll see over the next three to six months, the bottom or the floor could just drop right out of the market. Right. So you have to remember that wealthy people aren't taking out an auto loan. Right. By and large, they're just paying in cash. Right. So if they have the cash, they'll buy the car. If the market gets panicky enough they just won't spend for the time being right and so you could have a situation in three months where there aren't all of a sudden overnight there aren't any buyers Hmm. and kind of like what happened in 2009 exactly but if you look or you you know just think back you had pretty steady growth there and then it just went away yeah and that's the kind of dynamic that is at risk now but the fundamentals of what happened in 2008 and 9 are completely different than what we're dealing with now completely different there's a lot more cash on the table now whereas 2008 and 9 was more of a house of cards especially in the real estate market there's no sense of the real estate market collapsing right I 100% agree, right? But you, um, and so that's why it's a wait and see. It's not a foregone conclusion, right? Right, because um, uh, with rates going up, um, you know that's gonna that's gonna impact the demand for certain things. But um, wealth destruction isn't going to happen necessarily in the same way that it did in 08. There's no real risk to the housing market like there was then. Right? right, but there is a liquidity concern, right? And so when people are fearful of how liquid they can be with their money, um, they just stop buying. But it's not a foregone conclusion, you know, uh, in this case. So we'll see how it plays out. The next six months are pretty important. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I guess if if we knew, similar to, I mean, I guess there were some people that saw the government printing money in 2020 and said, this is going to result in massive inflation. I'm going to buy stuff up. I don't think there are very many of those people because it took a solid year for, uh, at least collector car values to experience an increase. Um, but you know, I guess if we had a crystal ball, the market would already be reacting because if people knew and said, okay, this is what's going to happen as a result of this, they'd be selling off now. And the, the what's going to happen later would be happening now. Well, so just one point to add to that, to follow on, right? So you had a situation where interest rates were at basically zero. Mm-hmm. So for people with wealth, capital is easy to get at 0%. They borrow against whatever they need to borrow against to raise cash, right? So all they have to do is pay back whatever they owe, but it's at a, it's a zero rate. That's pretty attractive. So wealthy people were able to generate some X number on their wealth to go out and buy cars and vacation homes and other assets that really made a quantum leap in the last 
right. three years. Yeah, they were borrowing at zero, one, two percent and making money anywhere from 10 to 100 percent. What happens, though, when their investments are actually reversing? See, well, that, that's the thing. People always talk about that margin and how it's smart to borrow because they can invest that money and make more. But now investments as a whole are losing money. So it doesn't matter what rate you're borrowing at. It depends the on what, the same amount. Depends on what the asset is, right? So if you borrowed at three, but you're making six, yeah, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't necessarily matter if the asset's losing value as long as you're making a return. And and a point for that would be like a vacation home, right? So, you know, you get in a situation where they're making enough money on the other side of the trade that it doesn't matter if they're losing money on one side. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, at some point, though, if it goes deep enough, that's when everything collapses and you get panic. Right. Right? And we're not there. Well, I would think also, so not all of this is driven by the super wealthy. There's a significant portion of both the collector car market and real estate that are people investing onesie twosie they're saying oh this is a good market to be in i'm going to buy a second porsche i'm going to buy a rental home or a vacation home and rent it out i'm going to buy it on margin and when expenses go up it no longer becomes primarily about what that asset is worth it's about can they make the note because if there's a squeeze like we're what's happening now is is there's a very real squeeze on people's budgets with gas and food prices and everything like that like if they just can't make the payments like these businesses that can't make rent that has got to drive it a correction as well right well let's call those people the incremental buyer and those people will absolutely disappear and the the second porsche that they bought two years ago or a year ago uh will come for sale quick right and so you could end up with an excess supply versus the last couple years which would obviously, you know, knock prices down a little bit. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, a couple common assumptions. One of these was sort of addressed in, in one of the, the questions from Instagram that I'll get to later. But two of the common assumptions I hear from people um, quite a bit is one that rich people wealthy people aren't affected by downturns in the economy so luxury goods won't suffer so they look at my business and go oh well you're recession proof because all your customers are rich so you know it doesn't matter if the stock market crashes they still have money right i say well yes and no one not all of my customers are fantastically wealthy uh, to the point that they aren't affected by a downturn in the economy. And two, like you said earlier, even if they don't need to borrow money, they're just smart enough that they won't buy when there's a downturn because why would they? So they, they hold their cash. Um, and historically, luxury goods are the first thing to suffer when there's a recession, right? Can be. So it just depends on the severity of the recession, right? Right. Um, if it's a quick one, the lower half of the food chain suffers the most. Okay. If it's a long one, both parties suffer, you know, or uh, suffer is not the right word, rain in spending. Right. 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 And put things up for sale. 
But the first thing to go on that would be the discretionary stuff. Discretionary to you and discretionary to a wealthy person could be different. Okay. Right? Fair point. Yeah. Okay. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you look at uh, what's the jeweler with the blue box, Tiffany's? Sure. You look and see. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they hold up pretty well, you know, until you really get a deep recession. At that point, you know, then sales suffer. Right. Right. I guess Rolex would be the same. People Ro always say Rolex right now, are like cash in the bank. If you go try to buy a new Rolex right now, it's like a six-year wait. Yep. Yep. But used Rolex or, you know, aftermarket Previously Rolex. owned. Right. Uh, are off like 20%. From their high, so that they are experiencing some correction. Now, granted, they're up a hundred plus percent over MSRP, so that's still eighty percent more than than they were. But pre-COVID, they said luxury watches that market was dead, and now it's as hot as anything else. Hmm. Who said they were dead? Uh, just you know, retail people, people right? <laughs> Nobody wants a luxury watch. You know, everyone's going to get an Apple watch, right? And that's and those just are the guys it. buying them. I, I think that right. was. I, I think they were wrong, regardless of supply chain issues or, or whatever. I don't know. I don't know who they are, but I think they're big miss on that one. A big miss. Huge miss. Um, the other common assumption I get is that when the stock market sucks, people will look for alternative investments, i.e., cars. So people assume that there's an inverse relationship between uh, luxury asset value and the overall health of the economy or, you know, the stock market. And I'm like, man, that like it sounds good, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Like the last three years, I mean, let's not just look at the last three years, but the stock market is up. Collector car values are up. 2009 stock market crashed. Car values crashed. Like that, that's, they've tracked kind of the same from I, my observations. I'd push back on that one too. If the, the, all the sales of extra luxury goods tracks the market, if the market's up and doing great, then those asset classes are on fire. But if the market rolls over in a material way, right, uh, sales slow down in those spaces. Right. My, my counterpoint to that would be, at least from my perspective, is um, if the market's down, smart investors are looking to put more money into the market because they realize the market is a real investment. Cars are a, you know, alternative investment. They can be a good investment, but they're not. They don't have a track record, and not they're not as predictable. So, I would say in a down market, people would be selling their cars or not buying more cars in order to put money into real estate or stocks or a traditional investment because they know they're going to experience a, a return in multiples so when that's, it recovers. That's spot on if, if you're someone with a bunch of cash, right? If you have cash or can create cash in a downturn, you make out like a bandit. Those are the people that really generate a lot of wealth, right? Because things are on sale. Emotions take hold of the seller. Panic ensues, and people just, you know, dump things at um, dumb prices. Sure. And if there's someone there that's 
willing to catch it, that's good for them. They're off and running, right? You just have to have cash. So there's some guys I know that are retired, and that's all they really do is they just kind of wait for crashes and go around and buy houses and tractors and cars and things, whatever they're into, at discounts. Yeah. Right? That marginal buyer that freaks out and had bought the second Porsche sells it for a big discount. There'll be a certain buyer there, right? But uh, but you have to wait because the market doesn't recover as quickly as it crashes. Yeah, but that's okay. Like you know, there's an intrinsic value. You know, sure. Uh, for for everything, pretty much. And if you know roughly what that is, and you can buy it below that, you're winning. Hmm. Uh, you touched on during our Starbucks conversation. You just brought this up in terms of the emotions of the buyer. You said that most of your job is. Or, or a big portion of your job is not necessarily studying the markets, but studying people and behaviors. Can you extrapolate on that? Yeah, sure. So it really shows up in periods of time like now, right? Like when the market is cracking um, or or considering cracking, you know, we're down 20. It's not too bad, but what if we're down 40, right? And so the psychology of the investor, my clients, people that I work with, is really what we're managing. So I become more of a coach than anything else, right? Obviously on the technical side, we're looking for opportunities and we're giving advice and doing those things. But, you know, there's either logic or emotion that comes into decision-making. And sometimes when our emotions are just way off the meter, we have to fall back on logic. And sometimes the other way around, when our logic is confused, you just got to trust your gut, right? That saying? Mm -hmm. So emotions run hot when the market is at, is down big or up big. And at that, in those times, you really need to walk with, with people and, and, and help them make wise decisions, right? Um, same thing happens when the market's at an all-time high and a guy says, I'm going to go buy my fifth Porsche this year. Uh, maybe pump the brakes on that. Is that really what we're trying to do? You know, and the same thing applies when, um, when they're worried, you know, the market's down 20. They're really worried about running out of money and you have to explain to them that, you're going to be just fine. We prepared right. for this. We planned for this. It's it's okay. It's uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. It's part of the cycle of the market. It's Yeah. I mean, if yeah. your goal is to be involved in assets that make you a return, you have to be willing to accept the volatility that comes with that same asset class. Right? Um, if but, you want security, buy CDs. <laughs> yeah. So that's why we, you know, we do a lot of financial planning, and that, atta- that, that helps us figure out what are you trying to do. And our job is to make sure that when the market's down big, we don't have to sell something and experience a loss. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, the client might want to sell something, but our job is to manage that, right? Right. Help them walk through it. So right. it really is psycho- psych- uh, psychological in periods of big market disruption. How does your understanding of people's behavior, how does that inform, like obviously you have to coach people through the normal expected ups and downs of the market, but how does your understanding of people's behavior help inform you or even, I uh, hesitate to say, predict what may happen in markets based on your studies of people's behavior? You mean how people will react in different market conditions? Yeah, in the sense of like, okay, this, I can see this coming on the horizon. And, you know, this is kind of the herd mentality. Like, I look at it 
so for example with cars um and this gets into a, another question i had but um people um getting ahead of myself here but people will say that if there's a correction uh i'm going off notes here and i got lost <laughs> understood yeah no worries um people will say if if there's a correction then you know there will be a certain percentage correction right and we'll say like okay the market's off 20 percent, cars will go down 20 percent. you know not that direct relationship but my response based on my observation is that a lot of people who are into these alternative asset classes oh i i know what it was they'll say back to the assumption of well rich people don't need to sell so if there's a correction in the market they won't sell off their cars because they don't they don't need to they're not bought on margin you know they don't have a cash flow issue so that market won't correct because the rich people will just hold on to them and what i've seen counter to that assumption is that um, a lot of wealthy people are and i i don't know if this comes down to ego or good investing principles but they'll get into cars as an investment when they're good and they might make a ton of money and then as soon as they're not a good investment anymore let's say they're just not making money they're even they'll say well this is boring it's not making a return so i'm going to sell everything off and they might sell it off at a massive loss and that kind of fuels the rest of the market because a lot of the increase in car prices is based on speculation right so we've had eight percent a year inflation over the last couple of years we've had um, you know 30 to 40 percent increase in used vehicle prices based on the supply chain constraint but we've had anywhere from 50 to 100 percent increase or, or even like multiple hundred percent on collector cars right so that's that's abnormal that's not following the normal market trend that is people speculating that is people buying them as investments there's there's outside influences at play there so as soon as these guys stop making 50 or 100 percent they're bored they're no longer interested in it they sell them off and stick their money somewhere else that they can make multiples on. And so that kind of tanks the market as artificially as it brought it up in the first place. So I'm looking at those behaviors based on my experience saying, okay, when there's a correction, there might be a more severe correction in the collector car industry because of that behavioral pattern I've noticed. How does the same observations when you study people's behavior in, in normal investing or, or the, the investing that you manage, how does that help you kind of make predictions and, and see ahead of the curve? Yeah. So if I'm understanding right, like I'm thinking about the, the clients that are engaged with us, right? We're meeting with them several times a year, right? So we know, we, we want to get to know them well, right? And so we know kind of where their biases lie, which biases really apply to them. And then we can be on the lookout in those, in those blind spots, right? I mean, everybody has biases. I do the same thing for myself. So um, when we're looking forward in the market and we start to see things po popping up, right, it's all uh, potential outcomes, right? So we're trying to assign some probability to that to each different outcome. 
Um, kind of think of it as uh, if you had a punch bowl on the table right here, right? And we put 100 tickets in there. Some are red and some are green. And you reach in and you pull out a ticket. If it's red, that's a, a negative return for your portfolio. If you pull out a green, positive return for the portfolio, right? So we just kind of try to keep track from a probability standpoint. Are there more red tickets or green tickets or is it relatively balanced or what? And then we can kind of talk to our clients based on those probabilities, right? Hey, there's more red tickets in this punch bowl right now. So we need to make sure our portfolio and the assets that we're buying and the, and the cash flow that's going out, we need to make sure that it's stable, right? Versus maybe a situation where you have, you know, 70, 80% green tickets in there, we can be a little bit more relaxed or a little looser with the cash flow. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about what's coming, potentially, I mean, I don't know any better than you do, right? And then we're applying history. So what has history taught us about conditions like this? We can kind of get a framework for those potential outcomes. And then we talk to the client about it, you know? Hey, this might not be the time to press full on on these different investments that we have because there's more red tickets than green tickets. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's kind of how we kind of study the client a little bit and then talk to them when we look into the future. So should I buy a house this year or wait till next year? <laughs> Just wait a few months. SwitchCast is brought to you by BoxCast. BoxCast is a live streaming company based in Cleveland, Ohio, and they serve broadcasters and viewers in more than 200 countries. Their founders launched BoxCast back in 2013 with one purpose, to make people part of the experience. If you're looking to live stream your podcast, church service, car show, sporting event, wedding, or even your cannonball attempt, BoxCast is an easy, flexible, live streaming platform for organizations. BoxCast is so easy, we are broadcasting this show live with our phone. Head over to switchcars.com slash BoxCast for your free trial. SwitchCast is also brought to you by Nathan's Detailing. Nathan's Detailing is a company in Cleveland, Ohio that provides mobile detailing services for individuals and dealerships. They also offer PPF and ceramic coating installations. With 800 plus Google reviews and an impressive 4.9 rating, Nathan's Detailing is the go-to shop for all of your detailing and protection needs. With Nathan's Detailing, convenience is key. Their mobile detailing technicians bring the power, water, and supplies to your home or work and detail your car on site. I, I feel like Nathan's needs to team up with Cannonballers and, and do like nationwide mobile detailing. <laughs> You're in Texas? Great. Be there in three hours. Uh, slide open the door, hit him with the pressure washer going by. <laughs> Check out on the move mobile. Check out the link in our description for free interior fabric protection or leather conditioning with your purchase. Nathan's detailing. This smiles for you. The world's fastest detail. <laughs> I don't think you want the world's fastest detail. Maybe the world's fastest arrival to your detail. I don't know. It's a really high pressure environment. Hey man, I'm uh, just trying to make clean jokes. But um, ah, all right, Mark, what do we got? 
Oh, no, I, I got to pull my phone out. Hold up a second. I, I prepared you for this. All right. Uh, let, we are back here on SwitchCast with my buddy, Brooke Bright, who is a wealth advisor, wealth manager, and financial advisor. And we're talking about the state of the market and how it impacts your cars. We're going to some viewer questions right now, courtesy of Smooth Mark with a new hairdo. It's got to match that Firebird out back. Yes. Are you taking that Firebird home tonight? Maybe. Maybe. One of them. <laughs> <laughs> I get that super sweet Camaro to drive back. Oh, gosh. Um, for, uh, first question is from VLM underscore Chris. Should I take a loan out on my 401k to corner the no. market on all early 90s XJ6 no. Cabernets before <laughs> the takeoff in value? <laughs> you should never take a loan out against your 401k for any reason, but especially not for Jaguar. Jaguars. <laughs> oh. Yeah, uh, a, f- a friend of mine, the, the past president of the Ferrari Owners Club, had her Jaguar down at, at the service shop, down at Earl Gibbs. And um, Earl called her up one day, and he said, Joyce, I have good news, and I have bad news. He said, the good news is your Jaguar caught on fire. The bad news is I put the fire out. <laughs> And it's probably still sitting there, too, with all the other ones. That's my favorite Jaguar joke. (laughs) What else do we got? That's it. Ethan didn't send me anything. Ethan didn't send you any other questions. All right, great. Well, I have plenty of questions. So, yeah, no, never, ever take out a 401k loan. He's letting me down. What's your take on that? You have to know the situation before you can decide if that's a good idea or a bad idea. (laughs) Such a political answer. (laughs) You know? There are certain times where that might be applicable, but you really have to understand the situation first. Is it ever a good idea? There might be times or situations where that would be applicable, but you really have to know the situation <laughs> beforehand. Uh, I don't even have a 401k, but I feel like if I had one, I'd end up taking a loan against it on something stupid. You would for a Corvette Grand Sport. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'd say... I'd sell my soul for a Corvette Grand Sport right now. <laughs> oh, man. You want me to give you an example of when it might be appropriate? I would like to hear an example because I don't, I don't think it's ever a good idea. But let's, All right, let's let me, hear let yours. Let me give you an example. So let's say, let's say you're working at, uh, what's, a, what's a big company out here? Enron. S- nope. Swage Lock. Eaton. Swage Lock. Okay, you're working at Swage Lock and you get uh, laid off. Yeah. Okay. So your biggest asset's your 401k. Let's say, I'm making this is hypothetical. Biggest asset's your 401k. Um, and, but you, you know, you got to look for another job, right? So, you know, some people might say, oh, just roll that right into an IRA, right? Get your 401k out of there, roll it into the IRA. Thing is that you can borrow against the 401k much easier than you can an IRA. So you really don't, you shouldn't roll your 401k anywhere until... You get yourself sorted out with another job. You know, you don't know how long that will take. So just in case you needed some cash flow, you would want to keep the 401k. Or you could just have a savings account, Ah, like an emergency fund for a rainy day. That's sound financial advice right there. (laughs) But I'm giving you an example of when it might be applicable to take a loan against your 401k. So if you've already made a stupid decision, it would then be applicable to make another stupid decision. It might be the wisest decision based on the situation. <laughs> it just depends. 
But that's an example. <laughs> that's like saying if you're driving a Nissan Altima and it's stolen, it might be a wise decision or it may be applicable to run from the police. <laughs> it's kind of like that. <laughs> Golly. Oh, man. I knew that I knew that the political part of you would come out and at some point. Ah, <laughs> highly regulated business. <laughs> All right. So in April 2020, there is a statistic I read that said that 78% of um 78% of people were living month to month, paycheck to paycheck. So essentially if you had one interruption in your paycheck, you would be not necessarily out on the streets, but you'd be in, in trouble. In trouble, right? And that was evidenced uh, because, man, just like the previous November, December, the government shut down because they couldn't, you know, come together on a budget. And government employees all over the place were freaking out because they're like, "Oh my gosh, I can't pay my mortgage!" And again, back to the situation we just talked about. I'm going, "Don't any of you have a savings accounts? Like, what are you doing?" You know, government jobs are one of the most stable jobs on the planet like that. And they pay people a lot. So you should have planned for this. But uh, anyway, they didn't. And the government bailed out their employees by giving them back pay and all that crap. But anyway, I don't want to get into that. All that said, at the beginning of the pandemic, when the economy was essentially forcibly shut down, the natural outcome of that, if 78% of people would be broke within a month, if they didn't have a paycheck, would be that there would be massive financial turmoil very quickly. And the government essentially stopped that by printing money and handing out stimulus checks. Now, two years later, we're at least from my amateur observations, we're experiencing a little bit of what should have naturally occurred in April. And my feeling is the government kind of kicked the can down the road two years with their stimulus packages, but they didn't solve anything. And now we're experiencing the same thing, just exacerbated by inflation and other, you know, labor industry issues and supply chain issues. What's your take on that? Is that accurate or are these different factors coming into play now? No, they're all kind of intertwined, right? And it really started in 2009, late 2008, 2009. Um, central banks had never really gotten involved in backstopping an economy here in the United States, right? Uh, the way that they did then, and that kind of set a new precedent for government involvement. Oh, things are going bad, we'll step in and backstop, right? So you had 2011, you had 2018, 2020, you know, um, just a follow-on, right? Um, and, you know, things have were pretty good in the economy, and we weren't raising rates. We were printing money instead. So there's that only becomes inflationary, Right. Yep. Um, and so in 2018, the difference, so they started to, um, kind of indicate that they were going to do QT quantitative tightening in, in 18. Right. And the market went down 25%, 23%. Right. 
and they changed course right after Christmas and said, nope, we're sorry about that. We're going to take rates back down. The difference is that inflation was basically zero then, right? And so it was okay to do that. Well, inflation's not zero now for a variety of different reasons, some supply, some demand-driven, and they're stuck. There's no easy way out of this, right? We had lots of chances to do something to get it sorted out, right? We did not. And so now, you know, we try to get our cake and eat it too, uh, but um, that's not possible in economics. And so that has to be paid for now or later, but it's a tough spot. What do you think a better policy would have been? You you said, like, we had lots of chances to get it right in terms of making policy that would get out of this better. What do you think? Well, there's a couple things to point to, right? And and they're always uncomfortable, okay? They're uncomfortable. It's like, um, you know, when you have to discipline your kids. I don't love doing that. It's uncomfortable, but it has to be done because it teaches them how to do different things, right? So you go all the way back to 8, 9, 10, we shouldn't have bailed out companies, right? Agreed. You have to let things fail if they go, um, if they go past the bounds of reasonability. You have to let them fail, right? Uh, but we didn't do that. And so we propped up a whole bunch of companies that should have failed in that time, right? And they were too big to fail. Too big to fail, but there were, those were the big banks and all, all the, that kind of stuff. But there were lots of other companies too. You know, A third of the uh, Russell 2000, those companies are um, shell, uh, you know, phantom companies, ghost companies. Now, they don't make any money, but they're still active because they get all this free money, low interest rates. They can keep themselves going, right? So you think about a forest fire, right? Forest fires are really constructive, but you don't really want the whole state of New Mexico to be on fire. Right. Right? Um, so government steps in and kind of backstops these companies. Okay, fine. Move forward a little bit, and we have a situation where we could have ri- ri- um, rates could have gone up in a low inflationary environment in 2018, but they didn't like the market drop, so they backed off. Tough tough right like if the market goes down but i mean rates needed to go up but they didn't want to do that okay and then all of this stuff really comes back to the idea of balancing your budget you touched on it earlier um you know you and i have to balance our budget if we spend more than we make we go into debt we pay the price for that right right but as a country, we're not doing that. So if our debt-to-GDP ratio, getting a little in the weeds, I guess, is 130%, that's bad, right? We are spending more money than we make. And so we've got this inflation problem now. We can't raise rates too high because we have to pay our debt service, the interest on our credit card, essentially. And, um, you know, it gets a little bit complicated from there, but... Um, you and I can't operate that way, but the government is doing that, right? And so that would have been a good thing for them to do, but that would have been really hard. Balance the budget. Just do it. So, Balance so the because they didn't do the hard thing a while ago, now they have to do a more hard thing. Now they now. don't have a choice, right. really. They're going to do one hard thing that'll cause some other hard things, or if they don't do the hard thing, there'll be an even harder thing later, right? So there's a lot of talk of a soft landing, and yeah, I mean, you know, maybe in the short term that's possible, but in reality, we have this high inflation number that is actually kind of 
exasperated by a couple different things that are outside of control, right? Russia, Ukraine, China, zero COVID policy. These things aren't helping. But we've let inflation run up. 50% of the U.S. dollars ever printed have happened in, you know, like the last two years, right? That's not something you see in a healthy fiscal situation. And we have to figure our way out of that. My silence is not <clears throat> due to not a good for the car market. Lack of at some point, perhaps things to say is due to frustration. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and what you said about the two thousand eight two thousand nine bailout. I was talking about that earlier. I think with my wife, I was so frustrated with that at the time. Um, and often it becomes political. People say, well, you know, it's Biden bucks, but, or Obama bucks, but Bush did the first bailout. Trump did the first bailout of this go around. So Republicans and Democrats alike have been, you know, responsible for printing a lot of money. And, and, you know, that the, the General Motors, Chrysler, uh, you know, Arthur Anderson, well, I guess Arthur Anderson failed, but the, you know, the companies that they did bail out pissed me off big time. Cause I'm like, they're private companies. They, they need to escape these debt obligations in the case of the automotive manufacturers. They needed to get out from under, you know, their union obligations and their pension obligations, which was keeping them from being competitive with the rest of the market. And in some cases, failing wasn't a complete failure. They said, well, the, you know, the automotive market can't handle General Motors going down. Well, they're not going to close their doors. They're going to file uh, Chapter 11. Is Chapter 11 the restructuring bankruptcy or Chapter yeah. 7? Yeah. Well, they both. Yeah. They both. Yeah. So they're, they're going to file that to get out from certain debt obligations so that they can restructure and become more efficient and profitable in the future. No, no, no. We can't let them fail. The government has to step in. Well, then it becomes taxpayer money. And, you know, one case, they just wiped out the shares, you know, the private shareholder shares and said, these shares no longer exist. We're issuing new shares. And I, like that, that doesn't have good long-term effects. I mean, from a, a real practical standpoint and just a, 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 a precedent. At some point, you have to pay for that. Right, you can kick the can for as long as you, you'll try to kick it as long as you can, but at some point you have to pay for it, and that's uh and and the cost goes up the further you kick the can, hmm. right? Um, but you made a good point there, um, and what I wish what I wish these guys would do is both parties are responsible for where we're at. I wish they would just kind of say, okay, uh, let's get the smartest people in the room together and figure out our best way out of this paper bag, right? It's not going to be pretty, but let's figure out the least punitive version and go, right? Collectively. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that these days. By the way, you said earlier, talking about have your cake and eat it too. Did you know the actual original phrase, I learned this recently, is eat your cake and have it too. 
That, I like that data point. I don't remember why. I, I read the whole thing. I think, I don't know, it was in a book or something. I'm trying to sound smart. I read books. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's eat your cake and have it too. I don't know why it got flipped around or whatever, but there you go. What did I say? Now you've got me thinking. You said, said the have traditional, your have your cake and eat it too. That's how we all know have it. Have your cake and it's eat it eat too. eat your cake eat and have it too. Oh, backwards then. Yeah. And it makes sense when it's explained. I don't remember why, but okay. whatever. There's pearls of wisdom right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, commercial break. And then we'll come back to listener questions. Um, this podcast is brought to you by Celebrity Machines. Celebrity Machines is a proud sponsor of SwitchCast. Celebrity Machines offers more than 250 different screen accurate like how i'm doing this screen accurate license plates as they appeared in movies and tv shows like seinfeld this is the, <laughs> the one i picked randomly uh <laughs> ghostbusters the fast and the furious the office breaking bad and so many more celebrity machines also makes our dealer insert plates as well as our commemorative 2539 plates from the fastest cannonball run ever and just in time for father's day these make great father's day gifts you can go on celebritymachines.com and pick out a license plate from your dad's favorite TV show or movie. And you can try the promo code SWITCHCAST to save 25.39%. But Travis informed me this week that their discount codes are experiencing technical difficulties. And uh, I don't think that's just his excuse for wanting to charge full price because aluminum is at all, all-time high. I, he is a good guy. They're just... Yeah, they're not working. So, whatever. Donate to the cause. Go pay full price and uh, get your dad a, a license plate. Speaking of good Father's Day gifts, the question of the week from Nuts for Sticks. Uh, Nuts for Sticks is a online merchandise store with uh, stuff created from the mind of yours truly. And we have a great dad joke shirt this week. It is Stigosaurus on the front. And on the back, Stegosaurus Rex. <laughs> now, those of you with five-year-olds into dinosaurs will say, well, there's no such thing as a Stegosaurus Rex. And you would be correct. But for the sake of the joke, it works. And those are available, and they may or may not arrive in time. Well, if you order them tonight, it will arrive in time for Father's Day. So, again, a, a dad joke t-shirt for Father's Day. Go to nutsforsticks.com. Use dick discount code SWITCHCAST to get 10% off your merchandise order. So the question of the week, courtesy of Nuts for Sticks, and the person who asked the question of the week will win a free t-shirt. It is from Gavin Ramsey. I like this question because I think I know how to answer it. Is it best to wait until the economy is recovering from a downturn to look for the best deal on a used sports car? assuming it will then be kept for a four to five year term if so what are the best economic indicators to determine when the market has hit bottom and is beginning to rise again you want to answer that? no you <laughs> said you thought you had well, an answer well, so I let's do, hear it like I do what have do, an what answer. Do you it has nothing to do with the market my answer is the best time to buy a car is when it's best for you so i don't care what the market is doing um Yes, the market can be crazy up or crazy down, but we don't have a crystal ball. We never know what it's going to do. So if the timing makes sense for you, 
then it makes sense. If you have the money, if your financial picture is order is in order and you can afford it, then just do it because you might wait for market turndown and it doesn't happen. Or I don't mean to be morbid here. You get cancer. Like that's just part of real life. People spend half their lives trying to analyze a market and time a purchase perfectly. And then they miss out on the enjoyment of that asset and life gets crappy and you know, got to pay for kids college, anything like that, that prevents you from that enjoyment in the future. So the best timing is when the timing is right for you, regardless of the economy. You want to answer the economic part of that question? Well, I answer that in two parts, right? So that was some, that was pretty astute, right? So one of the things we spent a lot of time working with clients is, is back to the idea that you know, a lot of people have plans, things they're going to do when they retire, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to retire and I'm going to buy that car or I'm going to retire and my wife and I are going to travel or whatever. And so they work their whole career with these things in mind and then they get to retirement and they can't do those things. Maybe they lost their eyesight somewhere along the way, can't have that car, right? Maybe, um, you know, for health concerns, they can't travel together, right? And so you got to really balance that in, in, your, in your financial plan, essentially, right? If you really want a car and that's your dream, let's figure out how to get that done, right? Because you don't know what the future holds. Uh, now, on the economic side, I would look at, um, I think, consumer sentiment, all right? Mm-hmm. So there's a... There's, a, uh, there's actually a, an index that measures that officially, There's an index, right? right? And so, um, you know... You look at that and, and you decide if it's right now we're at the wor- worst since 1955, right? Since the beginning of index, this is the worst consumer sentiment number that we've ever seen. That's interesting. Okay. 500. And so I haven't seen that. We don't have this month, so it has gotten worse. So last month, 533 months in the reading total since the be- since 55. Only 10 months were worse. And that was a month ago, and it's gotten mm. worse, right? So we're at the worst reading that we've had. So watch that consumer sentiment number, and when that starts to get better, you'll know that people are feeling better about things, right? And um, you know, if you're trying to time the market, I don't. That's hard to do. I wouldn't worry about that too much. I'd just start looking now, really, kind of like you said. If you want to buy one, things are kind of tough right now. Start looking around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back to when should I buy a house? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so frustrating. I mean, it, it's it's frustrating for me because we've had a, a great couple years in business. Net worth has gone up. Investments have done well. We own a house and that's done well. But I feel like it doesn't matter how much money we make. We're constantly being outpaced by people that are buying stuff up that seemingly have unlimited cash. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, well, interest rates are, are going up. That'll that'll bring that the prices down, so that'll that'll help us out. That you know, we're more of a cash buyer than most people, so interest rates matter less. So that'll give us our advantage back. Didn't happen. And okay, well the stock market's receding. A lot of people are really dependent on what their investments look like in order to make a purchase. We're we're not. Our our retirement is our retirement, our spending money is our spending money. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe that'll impact prices. It still hasn't. So I feel like I'm getting it from every angle where it's like now 
the portion we are financing on the house is going to cost more. The prices are still going up. Our investments are down. So it's like when my net worth went up, it wasn't enough. Now my net worth is going down and I'm still being priced out. And I'm like, how does this happen? Yeah. So just give it a little bit of time, right? So obviously rates have gone up, you know, uh, in February, you know, you get a 30 year fixed mortgage for three twenty five or something. Yep. And now it's six thirty, right? So just saw this stat today. Um, in February, the mortgage payment that you would have on a $450,000 house, if you want that same mortgage payment now, you're going to buy a $316,000 house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's the impact of rates. Wow. But the prices haven't moved. Not yet. But let me, let and me the touch expert, Well, but Mr. Dave Ramsey, Mr. Real Estate, has like 1,500 properties. He said prices won't go down. They will just go up less. And, and, and that's probably the reality, okay? So here's why. So we just uh, were talking to, uh, we had this little uh, uh, chat for clients with a, a, a big real estate agent on the west side. And uh, he was telling us that in 08, 09, and 10, we underbuilt houses in this country, right? Um, a lot of builders went out of business. There wasn't a lot of demand for houses, and everybody was trying to survive, so we are one and a half million houses behind. They can only make up in in, in uh, historically home builders make up uh, the build about a million houses a year, and so they're pushing out one point two last couple of years. But remember, we're one and a half behind. Hmm. So it's going to take five, six, seven more years to equalize to where we're supply and demand is about right. So the real estate angle is that there aren't enough houses. Now, I think the bidding war goes down. You know, instead of there being 30 people looking at a house, you know, there might be five. It might take longer to sell, right? But I don't think you're going to see material softness in the market for a while. Gotcha. And that's frustrating. And remember, <laughs> lots of people were renting, right? Yeah. And now they're like, oh, it actually, it's really hard to raise a baby in downtown Cleveland in an apartment. I yeah. should get a house. So it's interesting about what you said, that, that almost decade delay on, on the supply chain from 2009 and 10. And there are a lot of people saying, and, and I, I partially agree with this, you know, I don't think there's going to be a massive correction in car prices. It's not going to be like it was in 2009. The fundamentals aren't there for that to happen. But we have a very real supply chain issue with cars, and the supply was just decimated. And even looking at the metrics on the used car supply and the new car supply um, in terms of what inventory dealers are holding, it's a third, I think, of what it was pre-COVID. So, you know, that's going to take a long, long time to recover and may not ever fully recover. I mean, the landscape of the car market is going to be totally different because manufacturers are now looking at this going, oh, we like this on-demand type of deal. Dealers yep. like it too. They don't have to floor plan inventory. They can charge sticker, less salesmen, less negotiating, less overhead, higher profit per unit. Like, it's a win for everybody in the car business, not necessarily for the consumer, definitely not for the consumer. But that supply is never going to catch up to what it was before. 
And so there's never going to be a return to those prices. There may be some relief for the consumer, but it's only going to be a relief from the speculative high. It's not going to be a return to what it was because the supply chain isn't going to return to that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it, it's crazy to think about how expensive cars are. Uh, the the bidding war for houses, right? You mentioned earlier about, uh, I think you said 78% of people were paycheck to paycheck, right? Some Some stat like that. Well, saving is not in vogue, right? Saving is out and people take their pay and then they parcel it out. Right, so I can spend this much for rent, this much for my car, this much for my phone, that, all the way down the line. And as long as they can get all the things they want in there, they're in good shape, right? There's no room for saving. Nobody's saving anything. The average 55-year-old, the app now average, right? But the average is like $157,000, you know, saved. That's not good not for the future, enough. right? So yeah. you start yeah. to get any kind of layoffs in the job market, which could happen if this recession goes longer. Even at the higher income levels, people are spending all of their money. That's not a good situation, right? And so, um, but until then, car prices keep going up, supply demand. Uh, housing prices keep going up, supply demand. And man, it's pretty expensive, you know, like the, the family minivan is like 50 grand now, 60 grand, right? Common cars. Uh, that's a lot. So I don't know where that goes. Hmm. Yeah. All right. We got time for a couple more questions here. We've got a lot of them. I'll pick the, the best few here. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Hotel Slippers, I don't know if this is real or satirical. This is going to be the most significant correction since the 1930s. Hope everyone has been saving. Well, they haven't been saving, and I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, uh, you think it's going to be a big correction? Um, so it's. I, I would like to know what his thinking is on that. Um, not because it's right or wrong, just because I wonder if he's thinking about it the same way that a lot of uh, market professionals are. So there's potential for the big one, right? Um, That's what you said. There's, there's potential based on what happens in the next six months. Yeah. So like you know, the Federal Reserve has to make a decision probably in September, maybe in October, and um, depending on what they decide, that will either pull it forward or push it out, right? And at some point, um, the system will break, and that will be bad. You know, that could be uh, – that's not very attractive, right? Uh, I personally think the government doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to do that now. I think they'll kick the can again. At which Always. They want to get reelected. Right. And so that pushes us out, 24, 25, something like that. And we still ha- are going to have to pay for it, and there won't be any choices left, right? Um, so maybe that's what 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 that guy's referencing, right? Um, and it is possible; it's on the radar, right? Uh, but things could happen instead, right? Like let's say we uh, get serious about balancing the budget; it could happen. It's a 
it's a potential it outcome, happen. right? <laughs> um, things like that, right? Me climbing Mount Everest is a potential outcome too. But. Yeah. So you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't know the context, but it's on the radar. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Antoine Bowman, do you think there will be a switch from stocks and cryptos towards more tangible assets, e.g., cars, even though interest rates are likely to climb up? And not as a substitution. Um, stocks are still the uh, foundation for not only retail portfolios, but institutional portfolios. And so, um, plus they've worked, right? If you look at a chart over 150 years, it goes from the lower left to the upper right. There's certainly disruption in there, but it works. It's the easiest way to compound capital for the average person. Uh, so, no. James Coda asked a few things, but uh, the summary of his statement was, are exotic cars an effective investment in an inflationary market? I don't think they're ever a good investment or a predictable investment. You know, asking if something is an effective investment in an inflationary market is, I think, a little bit silly because I, I go back to the phrase of everybody's an expert when the market's going up. Right. Right. If if something isn't an effective investment, then you're just doing something wrong. So I see all these car guys saying, "Oh, buy this car; it's going to go up in value. Buy that car; it's going to go up in value." I'm like, "Yeah." real easy prediction like thanks captain obvious everything is everything is going up in value good cars bad cars um i, I don't know are they the most effective investment probably not but again it, it's it's whether or not you pick the right one but that's the case in an inflationary or a deflationary market it's always whether or not you pick the right one whether it's stocks or houses or business or whatever you still have to make a good decision there's no blanket Cars are a good investment. That's a fact. And as long as you pay for it in cash, right? Or or, or if you have a low or fixed, a 401k fixed note. loan. No, no. That's, <laughs> wrong. that's not an applicable scenario. <laughs> Just say it's a terrible idea. Say those words. <laughs> Potentially could be a terrible idea. Depends on the situation. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> All right. It is that time. It is that time. It is uh, props and flops. I like the props and flops. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. I love them. They end up mostly being flops. Right. But the flops have been good. So, Props and flops are brought to you by Switch Cars. Switch Cars is the enthusiast dealership where we buy, sell, consign, service, and store only cars that we like ourselves. Check out our hand-picked inventory at switchcars.com. Our pick of the week from Switch Cars Inventory is 2002 Mazda Miata Special Edition with just under 40,000 miles and a great color combo of gray over brown. It's very well specced with a limited slip differential, Bilstein suspension, special edition wheels, special edition body effects, power windows, power locks, power, 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 nerdy steering wheel, 
if any of you get that reference from an old main car commercial, I'll send you a free t-shirt, but I already gave you a hint. Uh, yeah, the only drawback to this car is it's not a Mazda Speed, but it is a fantastic alternative to a higher-maintenance Audi TT or Porsche Boxer, and it's in a very nice specification. We're asking just sixteen grand, but if you mention SwitchCast, you'll get a $1,000 discount. Maybe, I guess. Is that good for I, a tall I did, guy I did, or I didn't not tell good for the a tall sales guy? guys about that. Miata is not good for a tall guy. All I mean, right. I guess you could just have the top down and lower the seats. I mean, the the thing with Miatas is Miata owners are cult people. So you probably have like a seven footer owning a Miata, saying it's the greatest car for a tall person ever, and there's never any excuse not to buy a Miata. Understood. I mean, oh, I live in Alaska. Doesn't matter. Put snow tires on <laughs> it. So. Um, all right, the flop of the week. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported this weekend on a four-day road trip from New Orleans to Chicago, and this is courtesy of Breitbart. Uh, a four-day road trip from New Orleans to Chicago and back in an EV. It ended up as a disaster. Um, the journal article by Rachel Wolf was titled, I rented an electric car for a four-day road trip. I spent more time charging it than I did sleeping. Uh, the author described planning the journey, kind of like a cannonball, using the PlugShare app to map charging stations, estimate charging times, blah, blah, blah. Um, she noted that more charging stations should, in theory, be available in future thanks to federal government's new infrastructure bill. Yeah, oh, that's going to solve the problem. But the long-distance travel by EV proved almost impossible she only saved $100 over putting gas in the car, and that's probably due to some free charging stations that somebody else paid for. At several points, the car nearly ran out of battery. They missed several appointments. They had to take drastic steps to curb their use of power, such as unplugging their phones and turning down their windshield wipers. That's real safe. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Wolf also described conversations with fellow travelers. The woman charging next to us describes a harrowing recent trip in her Volkswagen ID4. She had to be towed twice while driving from Kentucky to Colorado. She f had described feeling unsafe while charging at night, and her family had urged her to trade in her electric car in favor of an old-fashioned gas model. But it's not old-fashioned. They still make them. Uh, she concluded the following week, I fill up my Jetta at a local shell station. I inhale deeply. Fumes never smelled so sweet. Democrats are pushing drivers to abandon their gas vehicles despite the lag in available infrastructure and the increased demand that charging will place on already fragile electrical grids. In 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom banned gas-powered vehicle sales in the state by 20. 2035? She says 3025, but that's not it. I think it's 2025. I can't be five years out. Uh, he might try that. Well, he won't be governor by then, so it won't matter. He can make yeah, the proclamation. Anyway, I, I thought the, yeah, I thought the, the part about having to turn off their windshield wipers and unplug their phones <laughs> to conserve power was awesome. These are like too big of a draw on $100,000 friggin' luxury electric vehicles. All right, the prop of the week in the same vein <clears throat> speaking of unplugging things and um uh stretched electrical grids. 
TVA, a power company, is asking all electric power consumers to reduce their use of electricity as much as possible until further notice. Electric companies in the area are requesting for you to avoid running appliances during the hottest part of the day. Use ceiling and floor fans to keep air moving, but only when a room is occupied. Unplug unused or unnecessary electronics even when off. They still use power if plugged in. Turn up the thermostat. Avoid using the ovens and cook meals that require less heat from the stovetop. <laughs> Not on this list is unplug your EV from charging. <laughs> yeah. I just like this is what this is why EVs cannot work. Well, just they, the supply they, they chain, you know. There's not enough stuff to make the batteries to make the cars. I, empty, empty promises. But but the power grid, like this is hilarious. At the balls it takes for an electric company, this is why it's prop of the week, now flop of the week. The balls it takes for this electric company to be like, yeah, just unplug your basic necessities. But please go out and buy an EV to save the world. You can't charge it, but go buy one. Ah. Oh. EVs are going to fail. It's my bold proclamation. It's my prediction. It is a what is a it's a possible outcome, potential outcome. Potential outcome. Potential outcome. <laughs> Brooke, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. How Great. can people get in touch with you if they want to give all their money to you to invest for potential upside outcomes? Potential upside outcomes and applicable scenarios. Inapplicable scenarios. Uh, yeah, so our website is landingpointfinancialgroup.com. All right. And you can find me on there. All right. Look them up there. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Boxcast, Nuts for Sticks, Switch Cars, Celebrity Machines, Nathan's Detailing, and Stephen Holm Woodworking. Thank you to our producer and call screener, Ethan Huffnagel. Our bumper music is provided by Emily and Ivory. You can stream their full album on Spotify or SoundCloud. This episode will be available Friday in audio format wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m., and we'll, looking, we'll look forward to answering your automotive questions to help you on the drive of your life.